I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hi, my name is Jahad Al-Tukham, here to invite you to a journey of peace with Sukun, another KC Network production. Our deep beliefs affect us more than we are aware of. Because of what we focus on, expands. In Sukun, we explore 30 limiting beliefs and we dissect them in meditative sessions to help us escape their grip. Join us every day in Ramadan. Let us expand together and live deeper. Today's episode starts at the Catalonia, a ship in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean. It's going up against some strong winds. We're talking 80 kilometers an hour here, and some even stronger waves. The Catalonia is trying to do something incredibly dangerous. From the documentary Beyond the Raging Sea, Here's Fahd Talqan, the Catalonia's captain. I received a telephone call from MRC Las Palmas. They say there is ship, she needs assistance. And I asked him what kind of assistance. They told me we don't know. Can you go this position? So the ship goes to this position and finds a half-inflated life raft on which Omar and Omar, Team O2, had been floating for hours. They had embarked on a journey to become the first Egyptians to cross the Atlantic Ocean, but had capsized about eight days in. We make small drifting and we stop engine. And when we are already a stop engine and they are already very close to us, about uh, five meters, I send the rope. The rope was to bring the life raft closer to the Catalonia. 
The armors would then have to jump onto a fixed rope ladder that only goes about halfway down the side of the ship, so far away from where they were on the raft. Now, what happens next is pretty scary, actually. Omar Samra makes a jump for the ladder and grabs the second to last rung. I'm getting very, very desperate. I can tell that I'm not going to be able to hold on for much longer. I start shouting and screaming at the guys, I can't hold on much longer. I'm slipping. And the last thing that I saw as I was getting sucked to the back of the boat, Omar with the one arm yelling, I'm going to let go. I'm going to let go. But then I remembered my daughter, Tila. It was very clear to me at that point that I made a, a conscious choice to, to live, to keep going, and um, that it wasn't going to end in that way. And it didn't end in that way. Omar kept going despite the odds, got a hold on the ladder, and was able to make it onto the ship. Omar Noor was saved shortly after. Desperate times call for desperate measures. It's something I read and hear all the time. And in theory, I can make sense of it. This idea that if someone is going through something so hopeless, so difficult, they will do whatever it takes to get out of this situation. But what does that look like in practice? Today on State of Mind, we explore desperation from the way we assess risky situations to how we nurture the resilience needed to continue. We will also explore how the Omars are using their experience to raise awareness about one of today's most pressing global issues, the refugee crisis. I'm Lubna Munib, and you're listening to State of Mind, a deeper dive into the chilling true story of survival documented in the film Beyond the Raging Sea. State of Mind is produced by Kerning Cultures Network, and this episode is supported by UNHCR. Episode 2, A Life Raft to Safety. And we're recording? Yeah, we are. Amazing. Amazing. Producer Ahmad Ashwar takes it from here. When I sat down with the Omars recently, nearly five years after that moment you heard at the top of the episode, five years after they capsized in the Atlantic, they knew I was going to ask them about their most desperate moments on the journey. But somehow, they weren't phased by it. Have you read this book called um, The War of Art? The Art of War? Sun Tzu? No, The War of Art. No, I have not. Well, it's a play on The Art of War. That's Omar Samra. He's reading The War of Art to help him get over writer's block while writing his memoir. We got to talking some more about his many adventures and ended up on this experience with the Kefalonia. How would you say Omar Samra, before this incident, defined despair and desperation versus, you know, that moment, that pivotal moment? How do you look back and understand desperation and despair in a new way, almost? From an adventure perspective, physical kind of realm, the most desperate I would have been was, you know, somewhere cold up on a mountain or near the polar regions, you know, when I felt that I would get frostbitten or maybe I was in some sort of objective danger that I had to navigate. But I think the the deepest sense of desperation that I felt up until that moment was um, 
when I lost my wife. And I think that's probably the, the definition of desperation in the dictionary, which is, you know, loss of all hope. That point on the ladder, the moment that you asked me about that I just described, I had lost all hope. I reached the absolute point of saying, just let go. When you look at a situation where it's so big, so big, that you do not see a solution, there is no solution in sight. This is when you start to feel this despair. This is when you start to be like, I don't know what to do. It's a very real feeling, despair, this loss of all hope and not knowing what to do. But not all desperate people give up. They almost certainly didn't. I asked Omar Noor why they think that is. Human beings are extremely adaptable. It is something that makes us survive. Our brains erase very painful memories, right? Which is, can be good because this is how you can move on and live from trauma, from experiences like the ones we experience, or else you'd always be stuck in them, right? But the negative side of that is when you have news of bodies washing ashore, of refugees, bodies washing ashore over and over and over again, the traumatic experiences, you get desynthesized from that. You stop relating. You shut it off. Your brain switches it off. It's that sense of being desensitized to someone else's traumatic experience that made the Omars want to use their journey to talk about something much bigger than just the two of them, the refugee crisis. For the tens of thousands of Afghan refugees starting a new life in America, so many of them desperate to flee the Taliban's grip. More than one million people have fled Ukraine since the war started. Anastasia Novitska is one of those refugees. Every day at the moment, six people don't make it. Almost 3,000 have drowned this year. The longer a problem lasts, the worse it actually is getting. However, the less patience we have for it, the less attention span we have for it. So for us, we, we said, listen, this is a unique opportunity to be able to shed light in a different way. From beyond the raging sea, here are Laiz Zouki and Mohammed Al-Hassan, two refugees who crossed dangerous bodies of water in search of a better life. How did I take a decision to put myself in, in such situation, my own, my wife and my kid? I kept playing, blaming myself. I kept all the way. From the point I get in the bus with the smugglers, I started to blame myself, what I did, what I have done. Some of us didn't have like a choice to make. Some of us just had to go through like myself. I didn't even know where I was crossing over, which country I was going, how safe I was going to be and everything because I was trying to move away from danger. I came into this episode thinking that I'd be able to draw some universal connection between the Umar's experience and the refugee crisis, that somehow these two experiences can meet eye to eye. My conclusion? The experience of the Umar's is nothing like the experience of refugees, and the Umar's know that. They always knew that. But how can one experience help us understand the other even if a little bit better? 
To answer that question, I spoke to Benedict Duchenne, Senior Mental Health and Psychosocial Support Officer at the UNHCR's Amen Office. For context, the UNHCR is the UN agency dedicated to protecting refugees and displaced populations. Refugees have no choice. Very often, uh, refugees are carrying invisible wounds, are carrying histories of complex trauma, persecution, gender-based violence, survivors of torture. So before they embark to this very dangerous journey, they've been exposed to a tremendous level of violence. I'm curious to hear from you that sense of desperation, that sense of, I need to leave because I have no other option. What's happening in the brain in that moment? What happens in the brain is basically driven by the survival mode mechanism, where instead of having an elaborated and sophisticated analysis of the situation, in situation of danger, life-threatening conditions, the brain will shift to a survival mode. Basically, um, a specific part of uh, our nervous system will be activated that will release specific hormones. These hormones include adrenaline and the stress hormone cortisol. The heart beats faster, breathing becomes more rapid, and energy is released to all parts of the body. And the response to this threatening situation will be around three main um, actions, freeze, fight, or flee. What is commonly known as a fight or flight response. The risk is that instead of having an adaptive response to the situation, meaning that they activate the survival mode during the journey, and once the threat is over, they come back to the normal stage, Instead of that, very often, because of the complexity of their own journeys, there is a accumulative factor in the traumatic experiences. So they start to develop mental disorders, severe depressions, or anxiety-related disorders, or even, in some cases, it's not the majority, but post-traumatic stress disorders. And uh, these type of disorders are extremely uh, hard to tackle. So in a way, leaving by crossing a sea or an ocean is the only option. And while survival mode is supposed to turn off once the threat is over, it often doesn't in the case of refugees. So how do we assess risk in this situation? How does the body know when to turn off survival mode? The perception of risk is uh, distorted. And uh, what would appear as a risk for you and me, even though you and I may have very different perception of uh, of the risk, uh, will be completely different for a person that's been exposed to so much. And this is why the journeys can be particularly dangerous, just because the, the push factors are, are so powerful that um, there is very little space for rational evaluation of the risk at this stage. I asked the Omars what the survival mode Benedict described looked like for them on their journey. Here's what Omar Noor had to say. You getting hurt or you dying or you seriously damaging yourself is immediate. That's adrenaline. That is fight or flight. This is a, like a primal, everything goes out the window and you're trying to figure out what's going on and, and how to get out of it, right? 
in these situations, what I always say to myself, and it served us so well in the Atlantic when we capsized. And when I say served us so well, it was my mantra. How can we make our situation a little bit better? That's it. I'm not trying to solve anything. I'm trying to make my situation a little bit better. There isn't a lot to do inside the raft, but you know, here there's this little bit of thread that's hanging. Let's 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 tie it up and and clean it and make sure that it's kind of all neat and tidy. Or there's a little bit of there's more water than we can sort of manage inside things. So let's start cupping it, you know, with whatever that we have and throwing it overboard. Let's count all the things that we have. Let's make sure we take stock of all of these things, right? And so we were just doing all these things to occupy ourselves, but at the same time as well, we were joking around a little bit. So as long as there's motion and thought about what you're doing, you don't see despair. I think despair comes when it quiets down. Despair comes when the adrenaline is gone. And all of a sudden, all you're thinking of is, let me just hang on. Let me just hang on. That hanging on is not going to solve anything. Risk assessment for the Amars is a bit more complicated because it's more tied to their resilience. I shared with Benedict the moment we heard at the beginning of the episode where Omar Samra almost let go off the ladder on the Catalonia and asked her where his resilience could have come from to pull off such a risky jump. It's a beautiful example. And uh, there are different traits and behaviors um, that are correlated with resilience. The most important, actually, is the flexibility. The ability to adjust to new situations. And uh, it's not a passive process. It's something that we can cultivate. Exposing ourselves to different types of environments, leaving our comfort zone. Those experiences uh, that are not necessarily harmful in, uh, in the daily life, but they can help us to really strengthen the our resilience. Um, also, the, the ability to cope. Knowing that, for instance, um, in this situation, maybe Omar has been exposed to very extreme situation in the past and he knows that he made it. So this gives you this confidence that I have this ability to cope and uh, I can do it again. Omar Samra is actually, you know, a very well-known uh, extreme athlete. He's peaked all seven summits. Did that also contribute, do you think, to his ability to make that jump and have confidence in the fact that he would make it? Yes, definitely. So from a psychological point of view, from a physical point of view and something else. But uh, the fact that uh, he has been able to push himself to the limits physically and mentally in the past do play a key role. If I told you, hey, listen, this building is on fire, run in. Now, If you're just like wearing a t-shirt and shorts and you've never run into a building on fire, you have to be in a very desperate situation to run in. Now, you're a fireman that has all the right equipment, has been practicing for years. There's two things that happen simultaneously. Not only is the level of risk down because of your knowledge and experience and and your experiences in, in that field, but also you know that that's what you do. You You go into burning buildings and you come out on the other side. I think the my previous experience, both having undergone things of not equal measure but similar measure, I allowed me to emotionally compartmentalize. Allowed me to 
understand that even my body was shutting down, all of these things were happening, I could still come back from this. But I know that the the image of my daughter did give me that that jolt that got me back to where I was at that moment. Benedict says that image of his daughter, scientifically speaking, was another source of resilience. And of course, the social aspects, the, this feeling of belonging, uh, hope, mobilizing positive memories of families or people we love, those are extremely important factors that play a key role in the, in the resilience. I think if we have core memories positive memories that make you feel a sense of belonging, sense of hope, a sense of feeling loved, sense of being lucky, sense that the world is conspiring with you, not against you all the time. I think all of these contribute to us being able to navigate uh, deeply dangerous and taxing um, situations. You know, you, you're going to make this. This is going to be a story that you're going to tell one day. We mattered. We mattered. A lot of people are following it. Our families are following it. Our friends are following it. They're looking at our progress every single day. We know that. And that, that is a buzzing. That's a humming in the background where you feel that you're part of something bigger. And that gives you purpose. That allows you to push forward. We mattered. I could feel this idea of mattering to someone, somewhere, near or far, as a source of resilience for the Omars. But in the film, I also found that having someone who matters to you can be equally as powerful. Here's the Ayazuri again, speaking about how his then-unborn child helped him see the journey through. I was uh, thinking about, like, I, I, need to, to, I need to be with Sarah for the rest of my life after this uh, experience. No one will know about this except me and Sarah and how, how, what we did to, to save our child and to come here. His name is Lumon because he, he saved us from the sea. And he's the only reason we keep like, strong to, to continue the, this, uh, this trip. Desperate times call for desperate measures. What strikes me about this exploration of a desperate state of mind is that despair is not experienced equally. I almost wonder if the idiom should go, different desperate times will probably call for different desperate measures from different desperate people. I struggle to find connections or even parallels between the Omar's experience and the experiences of refugees because the given circumstances are just so different. But then... I was reminded by the Omars that they never saw their experience as equal to that of refugees crossing by sea. Nothing can be compared, but I can tell you that that human raw feeling that comes out when you just want to live, right? I think that is very, very similar. Now, I think that's where the similarities pretty much end for me, right? Um, You're talking about two people I mean, if we're going to use the firefighters uh, example, right, that have been firefighting and and training to firefight and have the right equipment to firefight. We have the right boats, the right uh, life jackets, the the, everything, right? Communication, all of these things, right, to tackle this. We've had the privilege of 
thinking about it for 18 months in, in detail. We had the privilege of putting ourselves in these situations gradually and progressively increasing the amount of stress. So we have adapted ourselves and were ready and slowly had more knowledge about what you're about to embark on. An average refugee story is that uh, you're on a dilapidated boat that is overcrowded that it, with, a, with a smuggler who may throw you overboard. Some of them haven't seen the sea. They can't swim. You have nothing to base it on. Everything is out of your hands. There is nothing in that experience that is the same. Okay? And you make it on the other side. And now, your problems start. What? What? There must be despair. There must be despair. There is no other option. Nobody runs into a, a building on fire unless what's chasing them is worse. Humans are far better at coping with traumatic events than we think, actually, as long as they are uh, in an enabling environment, they have access to safety. They are treated in a dignified manner. And this is why UNHCR is trying to promote this community-based psychosocial support, because we, we do know that uh, for the majority of people who display symptoms of anxiety or depression, the answer is not necessarily medication. The answer is not necessarily therapy with the psychologist. But they need to break isolation. They need to meet with their peers. For children, they just need to play again. And uh, all of those elements uh, are extremely important. Next on State of Mind. My longest time on the oar was seven hours straight, right? So it's a huge physical stress. But in many ways, I was doing it not for me. I was doing it for, I have to take care of, I have to take care of us, right? I have to take care of Omar. Like, I got to take care of this. State of Mind is produced by Kerning Cultures Network. And this episode is supported by UNHCR, the UN refugee agency dedicated to building a better future for refugees. This episode was produced by Ahmad Ashour and our editor is Hibel Sharif. Research and fact-checking by Dina Sabri and Emanuel Sharif. Sound design by Yusuf Duazou. And I'm your host, Lubna Munib. Subscribe to State of Mind if you haven't already. Episodes drop every week. And before you leave the app, please leave us a review. It makes our show more discoverable, and we read every single one. Promise. Hi everyone, Dana here. We wanted to share with you some of the love we received from our listeners. We read everything you send us. This one is a review from a listener about our new miniseries, Aizen. Here's some of what they said. I just finished the fourth episode, and I was blown away by the story and the beautiful production and storytelling of this miniseries. 
Thank you so much for writing that review. We deeply appreciate you listening. You guys are the best. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. 